Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. It's the strangest feeling and I cannot seem to put my finger on it. Pain I choke man roll that cigarette just like life depended on it. There's a world behind this truck stop boys and it's where I'm headed to. I'm David Hepworth. In the current issue of The Word, Paul Denoye writes about I Choose This, a book by the singer-songwriter David Ford. He says it deserves to be picked up by a major publisher and then issued to every fame school student across the land. It's a tale of hard work and heartbreak. There's the awful dawning lesson that each new level you attain is only like some nightmare ascent of Everest. Beyond every hard-won peak, another looms above. David joins us in the pod to talk about it. Hello, David. Hello there. Uh, now, you write in the book, there was a time, and there, Paul's picked this out, there was a time when people swore I would be the next big thing. It took ten years of hard work and dedication, but I finally proved them wrong. So, for those of you, for those people listening who don't know you, take us through the, the main points of that ten-year journey. Okay, well, I mean, as a... As, as a kid, I found I had a, a love for music, as a, a great many uh, kids of my generation did. And so, obviously, I started a band, and the band was terrible, and uh, didn't know what on earth we were doing. But um, b- because I had uh, this strange staying power and a real uh, love for it, it, you know, eventually you, you, can't, you can't do something for that long that passionately without kind of picking up a few things along the way. 
And so my, my band became um, a band called Easy World. We we were naive and uh, and and youthful and exuberant, and we, through that, probably alone, managed to get ourselves a record deal. Um, and then that sort of played itself out, and I I made a solo record, and found myself uh, a little while later accidentally um sort of becoming sort of the great new hope of of columbia records um in in america in its uh what turned out to be the latter stages of a of a pretty violent bloody transition for it um which eventually sent me off into the wilderness again it's essentially it's, it's a story of sort of uh, coming in from the cold and then being booted back out into the cold again but, uh, but <laughs> actually it turns out that i don't mind the cold all that much right right so go back to easy world okay. uh, a group who i think you say were, were too good looking for indie but not quite good looking enough for pop is that is that uh, oh I, d- I doubt i would have ever described this as being too good looking for anything um I think it's too smooth or too polished or something like that. I don't know. You didn't fit. Yeah, you didn't well, fit in either of n- these. N- not, not fitting is, is, is sort of the, um, uh, my curse, I think. Um, for, for every incarnation, sort of, I've always had a flair for not fitting. Right. Uh, you, you describe beautifully in the book uh, a kind of epiphany that you had with Easy World at, uh, at the legendary King Tut's Wawa Hut in Glasgow. Right. But this is your first kind of first time that you felt that you'd sort of triumphed on stage. Tell us about that. Well, it, it's um it wasn't necessarily the, the first time we felt we triumphed, but that that was that was our first sort of step into into being a proper band. Cuz we'd been we'd been doing that usual thing where you um you traipse up to London, you you rent a van that you know the cheapest one you can get that's probably going to break down and it did a couple of times. And um and you, you try and rope in all your friends to, to, to get on the train and come up from, from home to, to come to London to see your band play. So that, that's amateur sort of, hour, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, first on, a, you know, the Hope and Anchor or whatever it was, I can't yeah. remember where, where we were playing. And, um, and, we, and we'd been doing that for years and, um, and, so, and sort of thinking that uh, in our naivety, like, like all bands do, that, that that old story is going to come true whereby some fat guy in a suit comes up to you at the end of the show and says, your band's terrific, and pulls out some document and asks you to sign on the dotted line, and the next day you're famous. And, and every time we went to play in London, we thought that was going to happen. Um, and obviously it, it never did. In, in the end, it was, it was a very, very tedious process of lawyers and, and A&R people and, and chin-scratching and negotiations that finally actually got us on, on, on the, the bottom rung of the, uh, of the music business ladder. Um, but one of the things it meant was that we, we finally got to do a tour. and we, we opened, You were supporting, weren't you? Yeah, we opened for a band called King Adora, who were like this, um, uh, this terrifying glam rock explosion of sort of sex and makeup and, and sweat. And essentially there were, there were sort of um, some hairy, brummy guys who, who dressed up as slutty girls. And, and, and they were a fantastic awesome rock band they played really loud they played really fast and the headline sets were 20 minutes long it was um and it was it was it was really exciting but our first gig with them was it was at king tut's in glasgow and it was a place that we'd heard about and it, you know it's, it's kind of a legendary for, on the on the what we lovingly refer to as the toilet circuit well i think it's probably somewhat above the toilet uh, bracket um but just stepping out on stage for the first time it's a, a in front of an audience who'd who'd paid specifically to come and see a band that night and not just sort of showing up to support their mates or yeah, whatever yeah. um it was just amazing and the um 
the place was full and it was hot and it was sweaty and all the kids were dressed like slutty girls like the band were um and it was it was incredibly contagious and i was i was wearing eyeliner within within a couple of days <laughs> right. after that and i just got swept up into the whole excitement of it and, um, and you thought this is what i want to do well it's it, it, not necessarily it, the eyeliner and the slutty dressing no, okay, I, but, I, I grew but out the performance and, and the, the the kind of charge of the performance yeah but became also, hugely important to you also, the, the the fact that even then I, I felt like there was something th- that we were doing th- in our band that was maybe it was maybe sort of reaching people, or, and you could tell that people were, were were having some sort of an emotional response, and you were on a, on a strange level communing with them in a way that even maybe the headline bands weren't doing, just because um, you know I think there was there was something a little more sympathetic about what what we were doing and and that's that's been more more than the rush of performance or that you know the rock star antics for me it's always been about sort of music as a um as, as a form of expression and communication and of, of sharing and exchange of ideas and things right. like that and, right. and i, I but, but at the same time, it is also incredibly cool and fun to stand on a stage and have people scream at you. And, uh... and one of the things that comes through in this book is, I think it should be read by anyone who keeps asking themselves the question, and I know people do ask this, uh, how, do, how do musicians possibly make a living? <laughs> uh, and, and one of the more curious explanations to this conundrum which you refer to in this is is something that some government scheme from many years ago called the New Deal for Musicians. Yeah, I think they Tell just us about scrapped this. it. I think they scrapped <laughs> it this year. Um, Not a moment too soon. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was it was kind of incredible. The idea of New Deal was it, it's a it's a way to get people who are long term unemployed, more than six months out of work, um, into work. Um, and and the way that they would do this is um, you would you would be um, allocated an advisor. Who would uh, who would help you? And it would be a, a very sort of um, a specific, uh, not not so much training, but, but you know you, they would really take your unemployment seriously and try and try and get get you into work by any means necessary. But if you were a musician, then you would you would get into into this strange situation where you would be allocated um, a music industry specialist, whose job would be to advise you <laughs> of how you can make it in the music business. But in order to get on to the new deal you you still had to be unemployed for six months and because a lot of musicians um i like myself included i I like to think that i'm relatively employable you know i could i can flip burgers as well as the next man um and and i have been known to do my shifts at uh, sweeping the streets and cleaning up the vomit of students but that's another story for another day um so, so in order to get to become um, one of these one of these people who gets the, the full backing of this industry support, you have to prove yourself essentially unemployable. So therefore, if you're an employable musician, then you're encouraged to go and work sweeping the streets, cleaning toilets, yeah, what have yeah. you. And if you're if you're an entire you know unemployable no hoper or a blackguard who can get away with with not applying for any jobs and and you know, screwing over the job seekers allowance system for six months, then you can get all, all this help and um, you know, free studio demo time I think was, was an offer. Um and, and as I saw this all this sort of um advice and all the time you don't have to pay your dentist bills. Oh really? So um it's all uh, it's all fantastic for the uh, for, for the struggling musician. But uh, anyway our, our bass player got onto that and and bizarrely I don't know how many people um did benefit quite in this way, but but through through mild cheating of the system, that's how we encountered our first band manager, through through her being on this new deal thing. So although I, although I tend to ridicule it somewhat, it did it did sort of work to our advantage. Right, right. Now, when you decide to become a, a career musician, 
it's a decision that's got consequences not just for you, but also for, for, for the people close to you. And you say, uh, slightly facetiously, that your mother sold her house to buy you a van. <laughs> is this true? That's an exaggeration. There, there, is, a, there is a kernel of truth in it. My, my mother was moving house. Um, she's, a, she's a bizarrely skilled uh, interior decorator and improver of properties as a hobby. But what she started to do from when she bought her first house was, was essentially um, made, it, made a, a fairly grubby unimpressive um, dwelling into something that was really quite quite lavish and lovely and ends up selling it for a lot more money than you right, buy it for yeah, yeah. and she was and she she had just been in the process of doing this and it was at the same time that we had our first tour booked with with King Adora but we had no way of we couldn't you know we had no money as a band and I had no money as an individual um, but we needed to get around and, and van rental is very expensive um, and so she managed to you know divert some funds from this from this house move and 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 gave me the money to to buy our van and it wasn't a nice van by any means no, no. um it was an old scouting minibus um and i think it had it, it leaked fumes into the into the into the cabin um constantly uh which got worse with years so as, as we did more and more tours we had to become more and more acclimatized to breathing carbon monoxide i'm interested in in, in how the, how being a, a musician a struggling musician and 99 percent of musicians are struggling yeah. musicians. if you're doing it properly i think you have <laughs> you uh how that how that affects your relationships with your family do you do you, do you feel guilty about it at all no um not enormously. I think I think my mother enjoys my uh, my career as a musician very much. She she comes to lots of my shows, even across the Atlantic recently to come to some some gigs in America. Um, I th- I think she's I think they're I think they're kind of proud. I think to to start with, you know, when, when your when your son says I want to be a musician, then essentially it's like saying I I want to you know be an unemployed crack addict for, for my entire life. It's not. It's not that amazing, and of course, I'm, I wasn't saying I want to be a classical musician, and I wasn't saying I want to be rich and famous. But you know, I, I wanted to to make music. But I think once you once you do show that you're that you're committed to it, and that it is, you know, something that is not, you know, um, you're not just playing with, then um, I think it becomes easier to to play. The, the worst thing I ever did, um, as far as you know, disgracing my family, was actually dropping out of university because that was always my my path. I was going to, you know get a degree and then do all the amazing things that the graduates can do like working mcdonald's yeah, yeah, yeah. um but um so, so that was actually difficult because i was you know i was i was a promising student and to 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 not have the famous safety net of a of a degree was was very difficult particularly um for for my father's side of the family who um you know for, for whom sort of getting education was was very yeah, important yeah, sure but for me, the, the good thing about not having a safety net is it means it's incredibly scary, the idea of, of falling. And, if, and I'm fairly sure if I had completed my studies and got a degree, I'd be a teacher now. Right. Which is fine. With but, no, no but now you don't have the teachers. option. Now I don't have the option. So, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't do that. I can't, right. uh, you know, I have nothing else in this world, right. which is, which is uh, it's kind of inconvenient because I'm sure I could, I'm sure I could earn a, a handsome living as a, as a graduate in something or other. But... Um, Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy that, that I don't have that option. One of the things I like about the book is that, that you're, you're quite hard, albeit 
tongue-in-cheek on musicians as a breed. Oh, yeah, we're scum. One, one, uh, one quote here is you say, you say, musicians are lazy, stupid, utterly self-obsessed and often equipped with a set of contradictory ambitions that verge on the schizophrenic. I like that. And one of the points that Paul makes in writing about your book is that too many musicians see music as the means to change their lives mm. rather than as, a, as an end in, it, in itself. You, you say, you point out that young musicians still ask you how to get a record deal, don't they? Yeah, it's, it's, generally, it, it's generally what people want to talk about when... Um you know, if, if people ask me about about music, it's mostly it's mostly uh, about the music business, which I which I do enjoy talking about because it's 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 fascinating and ridiculous. But I, I very rarely get asked about you know um, how to write songs or you know inspirations for doing this or you know the wiring diagram for my loop station and things like that. No, no one, no one's that interested in the actual the, the thing that music that, that drives me yeah the the the, the, the love of, of music and performance and writing and recording and, and all that stuff um it's it seems like it's it, it's mostly you know making it and, and and getting the deal and um you know i've 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 come to the point now where i don't have a record deal and i've, I've not had one for a few years and i i think i've i've never been happier in my relationship with the music business or, or without it because you, the point you make in the book is that is that when people get a deal, they think they've arrived, and yeah. actually, when you have a deal, is when your problems begin. It was that way for us. I seriously thought that um, because because our band was the best band in the world, in in my eyes, and because we now had a record record deal, and that's what you needed to to reach the next level. That, that essentially we would just make a record, and it would be a just a, a simple formality and a falling of dominoes, and we would we would be you too. And it was it would be it would happen within I don't know about three or four months, and um, and that's it and, and and my life would change forever, and um, it didn't pan out quite like that. It's it's I can't remember the time where I, I first twigged that was the case. Actually, I think it was when we were talking about who was going to produce our first album, and I wanted Nigel Godrich to do it as as you would. Well, you would because you know, I think it was his last three albums had all been. You know, it was it was OK Computer. It was that that pavement album. Um, he'd done he'd done a couple of Beck records, and um, he was he was the hottest prospect in town. And it seemed reasonable, therefore, that that he should produce our album. Um, and it was a it was a very um, a grounding conversation that we had, <laughs> where essentially it was like uh, we need to we need to drop a couple of divisions in the. With the greatest respect to Hugh Jones, who ended up doing it, who's yeah, a fantastic yeah. producer. Um, but you know, we, we, I thought that the sky was the limit and everything was was open. And I and I thought that you know, our agent would book us a gig at Wembley Stadium; it would sell out. And, and you, you learn these things very quickly. And I was I was twenty two then. It wasn't it wasn't like I was a, a child. But um, the, the the level of of uh, naivety that exists, even among those who are who are fairly close to. To, to, to being within the business is, is quite terrifying, and I was certainly no different. One of my favourite episodes is you, you talk about your... I think it's your first solo show that you do at the Betsy Trotwood. Right. Uh, and and you're very candid about your ability on that occasion to to, to turn a triumph into a disaster by, by playing a really long song after you've... <laughs> 
Well, have actually, you done a good short it's, one? It, it gets even worse than that. My first show was at the Betsy Trotwood, but the uh, the incident in that, front of that forty people, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but the incident we're talking to oh. actually happened at Brixton Academy oh, okay, in front sorry. of you know the best part of five thousand or whatever that place holds, <laughs> where I, I, my my agent managed to to get me a, a gig opening the show for Keen, um, at, you know, at the height of their of their pomp and splendour, and. Um, I played a I played a great show and um, so it's you and acoustic guitar basically is it? Or yeah, and I, I had a I had a keyboard yeah. and, and and my my loop machine that sort of helped me to you know build. But it was up you on your own? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was me, me on my yeah, own. Yeah. Um, and you know I felt comfortable on the stage. I've been on large stages before, n- not that large, but um, I was I was confident and, and bullish, and it was going very well. And then something in me told me that. I should end the set with a very, very slow, very quiet. I think it's eight or nine minute long song without a chorus, um, which is which is mostly just sort of um, light moaning and whispering for, for the best part. It uh, the, the the cacophony of chatter was um, it will live with me to, to my dying day. I, I could I can remember every single conversation, thousands of them happening in the room. And it's one of those things where you, you start the song and you kind of, and again in my you think I'll get away in with my it. excitement I'm kind of thinking oh yeah but the next verse there's that <laughs> there's that there's that beautiful line that's going to melt all their hearts and the room will fall silent and everyone will look at each other and sigh and uh, and of course they didn't do that because by that time they couldn't hear me I was I was gone as far as they were concerned I think they thought that that I was just the, you know the background music in between the uh, between the acts. But yeah, it, it was a it was a learning process. For for a couple of minutes, I had them in the palm of my hand, and then, you know, I they fell off. <laughs> it's interesting this because because sometimes I, very often I watch musicians and I think, does this, is this person aware of how this audience is reacting, or are they, or are they just in their own little space because they sort of have to be in their own space to get out and do the job in the first place yeah whereas if i'm actors are very often very aware of what's going on in the audience musicians can somehow close themselves off to it can they it's a strange dynamic i i think um i'm imagining no two musicians are the same i have the same thing when i when i watch bands play and 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 I'm an audience member, but at the same time, I, I, I find I'm able to sort of empathise with, with with their position. And sometimes the, the choices that, that musicians make in in the sets that they do. In fact, um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, in the building next door to where we are now, right. the, the Lexington, I, I opened for the Duke and the King, and their encore was them playing "Knocking on Heaven's Door" for half an hour. Literally. Literally half an hour, and not and not like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, like as in verse, chorus. 57,000 choruses <laughs> and and they would they would stop the song and and then they would start it again and then they take their applause put their instruments down and then just start singing the chorus again and it got to the it got to the point where I I I, I thought I was losing my mind it was it was it was like Chinese water torture um, and then it became brilliant again and then it became insane again and then it ended up as brilliant once more and and you, you become aware that um, that that was when I thought that they were they were losing it completely, but actually they just did, they just had more balls than I ever could to, right. to be able to be able to pull that off. Right. So I think um, I think no two musicians are are the same in that respect. And there's a lot of things that um, you know, if anything, maybe I'm a little too conservative when it comes to pushing those particular right. boundaries. I, I like to think that when it comes to stage performance and you know what you can achieve as a as a as as one man and a bunch of toys on a stage. I like to think that I'm I'm 
I'm pretty much out there. But um, in, in some areas, you know, there there are many ways to get the job done. You, you write about two things which have, it seems to me, have hung very heavy over music in the last ten years. One is the, is the music of Jeff Buckley, which, right. while wonderful in its own mm. right, I think has had a pretty much a malign influence on, on the whole generation of musicians. And, and you confess to being one of them, don't you, at one oh, point? Oh, yeah, yeah. Go on, tell us about that. Well, I mean, I, as, as everyone of my generation did, um, who was musically inclined and, and a little bit girly, um, <laughs> loved, loved Jeff Buckley. And the, the Grace album remains... You know, a, a masterpiece to me. But I think what I and many of, of those other people of my generation did was we misinterpreted what it was that made that record great. And we just thought that, well, the reason Jeff Buckley's great is because he sings really high. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, therefore, you know, the way, that you, the way that you be an expressive vocalist is you sing as high as you possibly can everything's in falsetto and you and you you vibrato as much as you can right up in the in the upper registers of of your voice and so and so me and um matt bellamy and and the the guy at jj72 he was there at the time as well essentially i think we all grasped that element of it and decided that the the way to sing you know beautifully and expressively uh like jeff is just to sing really really high but but not actually realising that that he had many other weapons in his arsenal uh, uh, in addition to an ability to sing the top notes. Right, right. Um, and so for years, the, 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 the thing for me um, in Easy World was, was, uh, was singing really high. And, and our bass player was a, was a girl called Jo. And um, in most interviews, they would address her as the singer of the group. <laughs> <laughs> because clearly the, the sound that came on this record could not have been could made by the larynx of a, of, a, of a masculine individual. So... <laughs> So that's, that's the Jeff Buckley um, um, problem. Yeah. The other one is Pro Tools, which, mm. you know, has kind of been introduced or become ubiquitous halfway yeah. through your time in a, you know, making records. And I think you say that it, it, it offers the chance to get rid of any, any lingering frailties in the human voice. Yeah, or, just any, any, any humanity. You can, you can bludgeon it um, from, from the music that you make. Um, I, use, I use Pro Tools. It is, it is my recording platform. Well, I say not of choice, but of, of necessity. Just, yeah. but just because it's, it's cheap and it's easy. I'd love to have a you know um a two inch tape machine at home but they're they cost more than my house does so um it's it's kind of prohibitively expensive to do that i think the the problem with pro tools is that you have so many options available to you to to just to just smooth things out to just nudge little beats here there to, to just to put a note in tune if it's out and and that's where it starts and before long you end up with with something that, that even if it originated as the sound of humans playing musical instruments it ends up sounding like a like a machine, like Pro Tools has made yeah. the record. Yeah, yeah, and and I think, and 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 to be honest, I think it, it suits the demands of, of of modern pop music and radio. There's there's this necessity to have everything mathematically perfect and laboratory pristine, um, and it's never really done it for me. So I, I I make records using Pro Tools, but I I like to try to use it wherever possible as a as a tape machine, and just you, you record on it, you you do your your light editing, and you 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 hopefully you know pretend that you're still making records the way people did 20 30 years ago one of the bits of the book that reads almost like ancient history is where, is where you talk about uh, how major records record labels used to approach promo videos which during your time 
as Columbia Records White Hope or whatever. Yeah. Uh, they were they were just a huge issue, weren't they? You know, that's what you had to do to get a hit. Tell us about that process and how you saw it. Yeah. Well, um, th- this this was something that um, I mean, having having um, come down to earth with a bump as far as you know where we were and where we weren't as as a band when we when we got our record deal. Um, Still, it was the case that, uh, that there, was, there was money being thrown at making videos to, to an ungodly degree. Um, so that, you know, the, the video for one single would end up costing more than the production cost of the album. And, and that would have been, you know, two months in a studio and then a few months um, in another studio for, for, for mixing and then the mastering and everything. And then they would blow that same amount of cash on a single one-day video shoot. And this was at a time that MTV was stopping showing music videos. Um, and it was it was uh, it was insanity. Uh, I, I can remember I I broke a guitar on tour, and I needed to um, get another guitar to go on tour. And so we sort of you know asked the record label if they could possibly you know if I could get some cash to buy a guitar so we could do our tour. And they said that I couldn't. Um, so I, I I I just sort of nursed my my spare guitar which was this horrible cheap korean thing um for, for the rest of the tour um and then the day after we got off tour we made a seventy thousand pound video which never got shown on tv <laughs> i mean like literally never got shown on tv probably well i think i think there was like mtv2 yes middle of the night um yes yeah, so, and there was there were some request shows where some of our more um arduous fans would 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 uh would would phone up a thousand yeah, times sure. to get it requested so but as, as far as actually um uh, a powerful promotional tool it was it was non-existent so when you look back on your time with major labels you know people always it's very easy to characterize major labels as dark and evil and mean and no so. they're big and lovely and they're, they're like they're <laughs> like big stupid st bernard dogs they're, like, they're like, big yeah. and stupid though yeah. aren't they? i mean yeah. because they will spend oh, they, in those days they spend mad amounts of money mm. don't they on on you know you in talk about some very strange places but they, they put you in fabulous hotels that your career couldn't possibly sustain didn't they um th- that i think that was just a, that was a welcome to los angeles thing from 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 columbia when i was when i was with them we, we uh the first time I, I went to la was um the trip after my, my first time the first time we flew into new york and we're, we're given like a, a nice New York welcome. But there's this rivalry between East and West Coast that is not just in hip hop, it's also just e- within record labels. Mm-hmm. So the people who work in the LA office want you to like them more than the people back in New York, which is never going to happen, f- for me anyway. Um, so in order to impress me when, when, I, when I first went to Los Angeles, they, they, they booked me into the, um, the Regent Beverly Wiltshire, which is the hotel from Pretty Woman, where... Um, uh, uh, Richard Gere and um, Julia Roberts have their very strange, mm-hmm. uh, dubious relationship, um, and and I, I I hate swanky hotels, which is convenient because I don't go into them very often, but um, it's it, it makes me very uncomfortable because I I tour um, in a very shabby ramshackle fashion, so I, I show up and my clothes are falling apart and I've got my feet are poking out my shoes and and um, I've I've got a a sack of what looks like rotting scrap wood that was once a piano that I need to sort of glue back together again in my hotel room. So I like those motels where you can drive up to the motel door and and do whatever you like. You, know, yeah. you, you can you can dissect a body in there. You can <laughs> you can do anything. Um, but at the Regent Beverly Wilshire, it's like a four mile walk through beautiful um, marble corridors to get to your room. And so if you know if you're 
lugging the carcass of a dead moose through there. It's, it's, it, it, can, it can be uh, frowned upon. But they, they, there was a time when record companies were sustained a lifestyle, didn't they, of mm. musicians? And that was... You talk about... when you were, Before you were signed, you used to look upon bands who were signed as being on, a, on another plane altogether, didn't you? It's part, it's part of the... Um, that thing I was saying, like how when you get a record deal and, and your band is, is, is good, then that's it. You're, you're huge. You're, you're a millionaire. And I think... So I think for unsigned bands, they, they feel like... You know, the, the the next step is the only step, and so therefore, getting a record deal is it, it means everything's done, as as I pointed yeah. to before, and and so you know, for the unsigned band to be a signed band, and um, I remember our drummer was a bit like that. I think that the day we signed our record deal, he walked into his local pub and I think shouted, "I've got a record deal who wants to buy me a drink." Uh, he was that kind of guy, um, and I think that's that's how that's how a lot of musicians feel about it. Like having a record deal is. Is, is such a big deal when you've never had one. And then I think as soon as you have had one, you don't really feel the same way. Because you now talk, you talk about repeatedly in the book about trying to get out of record deals. Yeah. Because that's the difficult thing, isn't it? When they no longer have any interest in you, but they sort of don't want to let you go just in case you yeah. turn out to be hugely successful somewhere else. Well, it, it's happened to me a number of times now. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm currently. Um, signed to to a publishing deal that i i'm not completely convinced they know that i am signed with them because what's happened to me a couple of times now is is um i've been i've been signed to a label which has then been eaten up by a larger label um you know mostly in the name of asset stripping to take the profitable parts Mm. and just kind of trash the rest but then what happens with with the trashing of the rest is your contract is still it's, it's still valid and still exists so, um, so what happened for me was that um, Jive Records, who signed Easy World, were swallowed up by the, the Sony BMG empire. Um, and so then, essentially, you're owned by these new paymasters, but they don't necessarily know that they have you. So around this time, I'd made my first album and was, was getting some interest from, from various different people who wanted to sign it. But of course, I was still under a contract. And so I found myself in the strange position of of having to be really strategic in getting myself dropped as as quickly and efficiently as possible um and and not for the first time either i've I've sort of engineered engineered myself out of uh, of a contract a couple of times before yeah it's it's nothing sinister most mostly you just sort of um you just have to cross your fingers and and go to them and say did you know that you are, you know I'm, I'm, I'm contracted to you? Um, <laughs> how would you like to give me some money? And that, and that usually that usually does that ends the conversation yeah, very if, quickly. Even if they even if the contract says they owe you money or not, if you ask them for some money, essentially they'll show you the door yeah, immediately. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. You, you um, Paul says uh, that uh, practically nobody gets rich or famous through playing music, and you you talk about the interesting um, importance of luck, obviously, in this yeah. process. Uh, and your efforts to get on later with Jules Holland, I found very, uh, very interesting. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that was that was the holy grail for me. I, yeah, as, as far as music on TV, it's it's in in Britain, it's sort of the the pinnacle for for, for live musicians. So um, I managed to get uh, was sort of an audition. I think a, a, a producer from the show came down to a sound check that I was doing um, in Shepherd's Bush. And um, and we were just the band and I were just going to play play three songs 
in the sound check f- for them, and for then they would, yeah, yeah, and they would they would ruminate and then and then go off and then and then book me for the show. Um, and it was it was only it was only actually when I came to write the book that I, I acknowledged that the band I was playing with at the time had everybody playing out of position. So I had um, I had a piano player who was actually a guitarist, and I had a drummer who was actually um, a piano player, and then I had a, um, an upright bass player who sort of dabbled a little bit in bass guitar but didn't really know what he was doing. And we were all completely out of our comfort zone and trying to play some very authentic kind of rootsy... Um, trying to be impressive. Yeah, and, and, and we felt impressive, and I felt we were <laughs> impressive. But, um, but, you know, as you say, the, the, the whole question of do musicians know what it looks like to the onlooker probably not at that point i think i like to think i've got a bit more self-awareness so you didn't get the call from didn't get the call um one of the other reasons i maybe didn't get the call was um i did i did a solo song um which featured lots of sort of swapping from one instrument to the next and, and building this um building this loop um a song called state of the union which was which was always you know supposedly my showstopper and this was going to be you know if i was going to go on later this was the one um but I neglected to wear a belt that day, and in all the moving around, my, my trousers lowered to sort of um, mid-thigh level, um, exposing my, my underwear, which I, I don't know if the, if the person in question thought that was part of the show, where that was something I regularly do. But it was, it was quite difficult, because it was microphone in one hand, sort of hurriedly trying to pull my trousers back up around my waist with, with the other hand. Needless to say, I, I didn't get the call. I never went on the show. And, uh, and, I, I, and Katie Tunstall yeah. went on and did a very, you know, did things with lots of loops, didn't she? Yeah, she, she, she sort of... Um, so she, she blew that, that box for, me. For, yeah. <laughs> for later. So is it, is it true that Bruce Springsteen is a big fan of your music? <laughs> so they tell me. So, so I read once in, in a press release, uh, and it's, it, that was the first time I ever heard of it. And um, You read it in a press release. Bruce Springsteen is, is one of your admirers. Yeah. Well, I only read it in a press release after I, I, I was in an interview... And somebody asked me the question you just asked me then. <laughs> so I hear Bruce Springsteen's a big fan of yours. And, of course, I, I look blankly because I've never met him. I've never heard that he no. knows who I am in, yeah. the, in, the, in the world. Um, and then when I went back and asked some of the people at the record, like, why is it that people are talking to me about Bruce Springsteen? That they said, oh, we, we put that in the, in the <laughs> press release. Um, which seemed like a strange thing to do, and and it turned out the reason that they did it was was based on on a, a tiny um, crumb of truth in a story. Uh, the first time, the first show I played in America, um, somebody from from Bruce's management came along, um, and afterwards said, "Oh, this is probably the kind of thing that Bruce would like." <laughs> <laughs> That's all it takes, and, and that was it. That's and enough. I think I think somebody I think somebody from from the, from the press agency was sort of listening like a hawk and kind of going, somebody who knows Bruce Springsteen well believes that it would be the kind of thing if he ever heard it that he might quite like. Yeah, that. Do. And, and then you know you, you you do a few Chinese whispers, and it turns out that he and I are like best buddies, and right. we yeah right, right, we right. hang out all the time. <laughs> now, without wishing to destroy people's last lingering illusions about the music business, I I, I love the bit where you, where you talk about the lack of sex available to the touring musician. I think that's more to do with me than it is to do with musicians. No, you talk about whenever you go on tour, you've always got some mate who wants to go with you who's recently <laughs> yeah. broken up with his long-time girlfriend yeah. or something. Yeah, for, for me, um, if, if it wasn't for the romantical misadventures of my friends, I would never have anyone to come on tour in America with me. There's, there's always somebody who's just had a breakup, and it, 
Yeah, they they sort of look at me and my life, and they kind of go, oh, I, I want to go and have a piece of that and get me some, get me some action on the road, um, and so, and so I, I I tend to play shows in America. The, the show is solo, but it's always nice to have a have a mate come on the road with you, and um, it makes for a pretty interesting holiday. But as I say, it's, it always tends to be somebody who, although I make a point of telling them that, that it's not, you know, it's not like that. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I think, I think deep down they go, oh, yeah, but it's different for me because you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work it. So, uh, so it, it's good in the sense that, uh, you know, I always have somebody to come on the road with me, but, but nobody's ever come on the road with me twice. So I think that's probably uh, telling. You, you, you say in the book, Paul quotes this in the review, and I do love this line, the, the, the conclusion you reached is, the journey is the destination, and the work is the paycheck. Yeah, is that that's what you come to believe? I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, if if the paycheck was the paycheck, it's such a lousy paycheck. <laughs> you really have no idea. Um, but I mean, I I've, I think about it sometimes, um, and and obviously it can be frustrating because you know all all arrogance aside, I do think that I'm better at this than than a great many people who do do much better than I do. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm, I've, I feel lucky that I haven't had to um, make the same compromises that maybe they have, they have to get there. And if I did have, you know, if I had gone to university and, and got my degree and become a, a very rich and successful banker, I would, I would be looking at somebody in my position that I am now and I would be, I would be green with envy for, for just the, the, um, the opportunity to, to be able to do this. For um for a job, and um <clears throat> and so I think you know if if I if I had a better job that paid me that paid me better money, then I would probably do this in my spare time anyway, and and uh, and so therefore, why not just cut out the whole process and just do it for a measly check in the first place? Well, it's a terrific book, David, and Thank I, you very I much. do heartily recommend it. Um, thanks very much for coming in. It's my absolute pleasure. The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. We're now joined in the podcast by Kate Mossman. Hello. Kate, you're right. Yes, I'm very well. You having a good summer? I'm having a great summer. Have you been anywhere interesting? No. <laughs> Nowhere at all? Not yet. Um, Have you been in riot-torn London? I've been in uh, Kentish Town, which apparently had riots, but I didn't see much riot. You didn't see anything at all? No, I saw a few boarded up shops and stuff and Sainsbury's, of course, the, it was always the big shops that were closed wasn't it? <laughs> Sainsbury's and Tesco's got there first and then everyone else stayed open. So. Right. right. No. Well, I returned from my time in France to see no signs whatsoever at all. I, I probably haven't been to the right place. What was it like in Southgate? Was there anything going on up there? Uh, not as far as I could work out from uh, 
Uh, I was trying to keep in touch with my, my kids while I was away. You yeah. know, my son, who was massively uninterested in the whole thing. You know, so <laughs> there's just a load of police around, I don't know. And then my daughter, who had a car, somebody set fire to a car outside a flat. Really? Uh, late at night. So she understandably got, you know, yeah. rather concerned about that. But did it seem that. much worse from abroad than... I mean, because the whole thing about London is that when you're in the middle of London, you have no sense of how it's affecting the rest of London, because it's all very kind of... I don't know, you feel like you're in your own little bubble. But mm. when it was on the news reports, it looked incredible. And people were texting me from... I've got a friend who lives in New York, and she was texting me saying... Look out! There's riots in Kentish Town yeah, tonight. Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I suppose that's just the, the, the yeah the pe- the person outside London's inevitable reaction to anything yeah. going on in London is it must be near you. And then rolling news as well, which yeah. just makes it look and so Twitter. terrifying. That's the yeah. thing. I mean, you know, because you know the old line about the insurance company that used to advertise on we won't make a drama out of a crisis. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Twitter will make a drama out of a crisis it at will. every stage. Well, we were just talking just a minute ago, weren't we, about the um, the the rogue tweets about the the writers opening the doors to London Zoo and letting all the animals yeah. out. <laughs> Someone had tweeted, "There are tigers in Oxford Street." There would have been. There would have been. <laughs> points at which people would have believed it anyway before that <laughs> yeah. before i went away and uh, a, a few weeks ago you, you went to talk to amy levere and you've written about in the in the new issue of word yeah, great when, how did you first hear about amy levere we were talking in the office about um uh, the fact that she's quite unusual she's marked out by the fact she plays a, a sort of big doghouse bass um, she's very small. Doghouse yeah. base? I've never heard that. The base is much way. bigger than her. Um, Why is it called dog? Because you can keep dogs Because it's there. like the size of a kennel. Oh, I see. <laughs> That's a good I one. I believe, yeah. Or is, that bigger than, is that bigger than a big-ass base? Big-ass <laughs> base. Big-ass right. base would be better. Depends how big your ass is, I guess, when yeah, you're I playing it. So. So. Let's not go there. Um, so but, that's where you first heard of her. Yeah, and then she was um, she was playing the borderline, which is obviously the sort of um, the sort of good atmosphere, little little pokey place in the middle of London. She's and from then, where? Nashville or Memphis? She's from or? originally from Louisiana, um, but she's had one of these interesting careers. She always seems to be on the fringes of uh, of the entertainment industry. She was a guide for Memphis um, Sun Studios for years. All oh, right. Um, so she, uh, she God, actually, I've probably met her. I've you done probably the, did. I've done the tour around there. Doesn't so take long. No. She did, she's Doesn't done it for six long. years, and she gave up two years ago. So it depends when. You oh, I will have met her. Do you remember if the guide had curly black hair? No, the guide was a bloke, but I remember talking to all the staff at the cafe next door. And yeah. It, and she was probably one of them. Yeah. The bloke who did my tour had a mullet and a quiff oh, at the same yeah. time. I think a I terrific met him. haircut. I think I met him. So it was very high at the front and then yeah. long at the back, presumably. Memphis is a fascinating place because... Uh, you know, there are everywhere you go. They show you the mixing desk on which you know. Yeah. Senso made take me to the river. Or... I, I stayed at a hotel opposite Graceland's, and I had a popcorn machine in the room. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. And twenty-four hour overs on the TV. Oh, do you find that, that they sort of they may claim these? You know how? Oh yeah, the old things about oh, you know, the amount of people that fit, that saw the Stones at the Hundred Club would have filled, filled Wembley Stadium. And if all the like people who saw the Sex Pistols upstairs at the Free Trade Hall had been there, the, yeah. the club would have collapsed into the auditorium. Yeah, so maybe it's like every studio um, that was supposed to have recorded one of these famous records or something. And they could, it's uh, it's, I mean, it's like fragments of the True Cross. They're absolutely <laughs> everywhere because you know they, I, rem- I, I remember going to Memphis for some. Went to America in 1976-77, and and nobody was interested in this heritage then. Really, all. no, no interest at all. Was Beale Street was there? about to be knocked down, literally. <laughs> there were the last few, you know, um, last few building fronts on Beale Street. we yeah. waiting for the wrecking ball. What happened? Well, I tell you what happened. Elvis Presley died, uh, and then they yeah. suddenly thought, 
Because Elvis Presley, let's not forget, far bigger dead than he was alive. Isn't it the anniversary Particularly... of his death today? I'm sure it is. Oh, is it? Yeah. 16th of August? I'm sure oh, it's, yeah, it's Elvis' it anniversary. Summer. I don't remember. But, um, and so then Elvis, Elvis tourism and subsequently music tourism became Memphis's biggest, you know, currency. Mm. So they take it enormously seriously. So anywhere that's got a musical association of any kind, they, you know, they've started a cafe. Yeah, and, yeah. And they'll sell you a T-shirt. Or but it's good in the Sun Studios, isn't it? It's, it's actually quite... People say it's quite moving, sort of standing on the cross where... Well, he... it is one of the... I, 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 did a th- I did a thing for MTV out there. This is years ago. And I stood there in the outer office the Sun Studios at, on Union Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee, and I said, to quote myself, I said, the only bit of rock history that we know for, for a fact is that Elvis Presley walked in this room <laughs> and said to this woman, Marion Kaiska, who was working behind the desk, I want to make a record. Yeah. Because that building was that building, and, and he did go there. Yeah. You that know was what I mean? And there was, a, there was a date at which he went there in the first place. And everything else after that. Everything else, nobody yeah. quite knows. You know, nobody, nobody exactly knows yeah. when Smokey, Smokey Robinson met the Miracles or anything like that. Yeah, you know? But you great. really do know that. And you can stand in that little space and think, yeah, this happened here. Yeah, there's a great um, a great story that um, Amy Levere told, actually. It's a, I might read it out of the thing. I can't remember word for word. So she goes, uh, my aunt dated a fellow called Casey Fontana, who was the brother of Elvis's drummer. She went on a double date with Elvis and his girl at the time. She was waiting in line for the, at the movie theatre, and Elvis was standing in front of her. She told me, you know what my first thought about Elvis Presley was? My, that boy has a dirty neck. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently she used to tell this story to the people on her tour because it, and they wondered whether she was connected to Elvis in some way. She said, well, no, I'm not exactly related to him, but my aunt went out with the drummer for a while. Kind of. no, that's a good connection. It's a good yeah. connection. One of the things I love about Amy Levere, she made one of my favourite records of the last few years, uh, a song called Killing Him. Do you know that mm, no, song? No, I don't know that one. Of the, of the, uh, of, of her previous album, which I think is called Anchors and Anvils, and she got the idea from a, a newspaper headline about a woman who'd killed her husband, and the line was, "Killing him didn't make the love go away." Wow! <laughs> and so, what a great hook line, you yeah. know? That, yeah, but it's just funny because the song that we um, we recorded in backstage in this little dressing room um, is about a similar thing. It's a a modern murder ballad about um, sung from the perspective of a girl walking along the river with her lover and then it's just got this amazing kind of what we were talking about as an information gap in the middle where something happens and it's not there's obviously some terrible murder and the song's called Red Banks um, and it's a similar thing and she was talking about that interest in the point at which love turns to hate <laughs> the fact that two things can coexist so this is uh, very intense character Amy LeVere
Amy Levere doing Red Bank, uh, recorded exclusively for the word podcast at the borderline, and that's from her new album, Stranger Me. Uh, we've already had uh, David Ford talking about his book, I Choose This, which is uh, published by Magnolia Books. Uh, also in the new issue of The Word, Paul Denoy remembers Amy Winehouse, and Eamon Ford lifts the lid on Guy, Guy Han's stormy tenure at EMI. That's on sale at actual news agents right now. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your news agent 